Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Are the house lights all the way up? There we go. Let there be light, and there was. And I can see. Hey, I want to give a shout out to Pastor Dustin for preaching in my stead last week. Let's give him a hand. I know he did a great job. And I'm so thankful that the Lord has brought Dustin and Haley here to be with us. And I'm thankful for his ministry. So this will probably date me a little bit, but back in the 80s when I was growing up in high school, I was not allowed to watch a certain TV show. Um, It was one of the first comedies on Fox, the new Fox network. It was called Married with Children. And it was pretty scandalous at the time because it portrayed a dysfunctional family. Now, this was at the time of the Cosby Show and Family Ties and Growing Pains, all these wholesome family shows. And then you had Married with Children come along, just broke all the stereotypes. It was very scandalous. You had um, Al Bundy, who was basically the goofy shoe salesman that was kind of a loser. And then you had his wife, Peggy, who always called him a loser. And uh, she sat around all day watching soap operas. And then you had Kelly She was kind of the bimbo, blonde-haired daughter who was promiscuous and flighty, and then their son, Bud, who was the smart aleck, obsessed with girls. And sadly, this was on the air for 11 seasons, and it portrayed the all-American dysfunctional family. And it's no surprise that our enemy, the devil, goes straight to the family to try to destroy God's good design. He goes to the family. And it's also no surprise that our enemy, the devil, goes straight to the church family because not only does the devil want to destroy families, he also wants to destroy church families. And so, as believers in Christ, we are to have healthy families and healthy churches for the glory of God. Now, I told you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, but I want you to back up just, for a, just to back to chapter 3. If you've got a physical Bible like me, it's not that hard to, to look back. We've been looking at this, this key passage all throughout our journey here in 1 Timothy, but if you go back to chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. The church is a family. The church is a household. I I have to keep reminding us week in and week out, we are a church family. God is our Father. He's adopted us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, as a church family, how do we treat one another? We should treat each other as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. So let me remind you of the context where we've been in 1 Timothy over the past few weeks. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul reminds us of the demonic dangers of false teaching, that many will fall away from the faith. There will be demonic teachings in the last days. 
Then he talks about what it means to be a good servant of Christ. A good servant of Christ teaches sound doctrine, trains for godliness, and toils for the salvation of others. And then Pastor Dustin last week talked about how Timothy was an example in life, in conduct, in speech, in purity, and how God uses his authoritative word to sanctify us as a church. And so he's writing to this young pastor Timothy to give him instruction on how to lead. And so... As Dustin shared last week, pastors are to teach with authority. But there's a caution. While pastors are to teach and preach with authority, they are never to be authoritarian. They are never to be dictatorial. I've met way too many pastors over the years that have said this, it's my way or the highway. Let me remind you what Peter tells pastors 1 Peter 5, 2-3, shepherd the flock of God that's among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So as we move into chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to be instructing Timothy about how he's to relate to all different types of people in the church, in the household of God, as a church family. And so up to this point, we focused a lot on sound teaching, the importance of sound teaching, the importance of sound theology, the importance of of good pastoral leadership. But here, Paul kind of shifts gears, and he talks about how do we treat one another in the church? How do we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? So let's move into chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let's read this together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity honor widows who are truly widows but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of god she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on god and continues in supplications and prayers night and day but she who is a self-indulgent is dead even when she lives Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So let's distill this passage down to its main idea. What's the big idea, the main point of this passage of Scripture? It's, It's simply this. A healthy church has a culture of three things. Patience purity and provision a healthy church has a culture of patience purity and provision and so as we've been looking at the need for sound doctrine which is vitally important for our church we're never going to compromise on that we need qualified leaders we looked at in chapter three qualified biblical male only elders to lead the church servant deacons Doctrine and theology and spiritual leadership are vitally important to the life of the church. But now we're going to be kind of looking at how do we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we interact? 
So let's explore these three characteristics of a healthy church. Let's look at the first. First, believers should encourage one another with all patience. Believers should encourage one another with all patience. Regardless of your age, and I'm thankful that we are a multi-generational church, regardless if you're a a baby in the nursery or you're the oldest senior adult or, or everybody in between, you deserve from me as your pastor respect and compassion and encouragement and for me to be ready to serve you with gladness. See, there's a tendency sometimes among younger men to be arrogant, impatient, think they know everything. Young men can sometimes be rash, they can be impetuous, they can be know-it-alls, and they don't listen to godly leaders and people who have gone before them. I remember when I first came to Emmanuel 18 years ago, I had a lot of big dreams and visions for this church. I thought I was going to come in and change the world. And I came from kind of a culture of a church in Colorado Springs that had more of a business model, had more of a mega church seeker-sensitive model. And, and so the pastor doesn't really get his hands dirty. He goes in and he, he casts vision and he makes changes. And my dad gave me good advice. My dad's a pastor. When I first came to Emmanuel, he said, Sean, all the things you see wrong with the church, put on a piece of paper and put it in your desk drawer and do not look at it for six months. Take it out after six months and see if those are really issues. You see, when I came to Emmanuel, we were just beginning to think about building this new building. So I was thinking about capital fundraising. Uh, we had moved to an elder model, and we hadn't changed our constitution. So I'm thinking big picture. we got to change the constitution and bylaws. we gotta, we got to add uh, deacons to our elders. We've got to do capital fundraising. We've got to do all these big things. And sometimes I got annoyed when I had to make a decision about benevolence or I had to visit somebody in the hospital or dare I say I had to make a decision in staff meeting on when our next potluck was going to be because those were the little things. Those were the unimportant things. The big things like constitution and bylaws and capital fundraising, those were the important things. And I look back on those first few months in Emmanuel and realized I was kind of being I was wrong. I had, to have, I had to ask God to change my heart, and I had to realize that being available to you as my flock was way more important than we could get to the Constitution and bylaws. We can get to capital fundraising. We can get to the big stuff. Those are important. But hospital visitation, being there with you, counseling you, being ready to share life with you was more crucial than any type of big vision casting I could have done. And so when I came to Emmanuel, I was young, and I may have been impetuous, and and thankfully I'm still here. Some of you are like, why is he still here? Well, after 18 years, you haven't gotten rid of me. And so I'm thankful for that because I made a lot of mistakes in those early years. But let me just say this. There's nothing more unflattering than a young, arrogant pastor who walks with a swagger and thinks he knows everything and walks around like he does not need to hear any advice from his elders, both men and women. And so Paul says to Timothy, you need to refute false teaching. You need to rebuke those that are teaching false teaching. But notice what he says in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Don't rebuke. That's, that's a very interesting word in the original language. It only shows up here in the Bible. It really means a verbal tongue lashing. 
a severe reprimand that embarrasses an older man. Timothy, don't rip into these older men. Don't embarrass these men. Don't give them a tongue lashing. Instead, encourage them. Come alongside them. Respect them. Encourage these men as fathers. Now, not your literal father. See, we have fathers in the faith. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. All throughout the Proverbs, you hear this need to listen to your father and your mother's instruction. Proverbs 15.20, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. You see, as a young man, and I'm getting a little bit older as time goes by, I need to be respecting the older men in this church as my spiritual fathers, as men that have invested in me. We are to treat those men that are older than us as our fathers. And then the the older women in this church I just love. I I can't tell you how much I love you. I hate to say older. I'll say seasoned. I love the seasoned women in this church that give me hugs and pray for me and love me. You, You are like a second mother to me. And Paul even had that. In Romans 16, 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Don and I have had many mothers and fathers in this church over the years that have treated us with love and compassion, and I consider it a great privilege to be able to call many of you my father in the faith, my mother in the faith. So Paul says, respect, encourage these older men as you would a father. And then younger men as brothers. You know, sometimes younger men, they're competitive with other men. Treat them as your brothers and and treat the older women as your, your mothers. And so ultimately what Paul is saying is we should have patience and encouragement with one another. To be patient and encouraging with one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Is Emmanuel Baptist Church marked by a culture of encouragement, patience, deference, submission, Or are we a place where people gossip about one another? We rip into one another. We bite and devour one another. Thankfully, I don't see that. But I don't underestimate the power of our enemy, the devil, to come in and destroy the great unity that we have. Galatians 5.15 says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Timothy, don't rebuke Don't shame, don't rip into these older men. Encourage them. Be patient with them. Be patient with one another. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. We're a church family to be patient and encouraging and loving one another. So that's the first mark of a healthy church. We should encourage one another with all patience. But here's the second mark of a healthy church. Believers should engage one another with all patience purity now we don't know if timothy was married 
Most scholars believe he probably was not. We really don't know. But there would be a temptation for a young man, especially an unmarried young man, in a church with younger women. So notice what Paul says to how he's to treat the younger women. He says, treat the younger women as sisters in all purity, or literally in absolute purity, utmost purity. This goes back to what Pastor Dustin preached last week. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 4, it's the same Greek word. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers in example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Treat these women with all purity. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 25 years now, and I do practice what's been, some people make fun of it, but it's called the Billy Graham rule. Let me tell you what the Billy Graham rule is. I will not meet with another woman alone unless she's my wife, Dawn, or my mom. I don't counsel women alone. I don't go out to eat and counsel with women alone. If I do have a counseling, and a lot of you women know this, if you come into my office, Sherry and Sharina or Dustin will be there. I will have my blinds open. I will not be in this building alone with a woman. I do not counsel any woman alone. Many of you may remember Dr. Steve Vettito, who was the, he's the director of the Rocky Mountain campus of Gateway Seminary. He was the interim pastor here before I came. I was in one of his classes, and he was talking about the Billy Graham rule, and he was talking about how, as young pastors, we really need to protect ourselves and protect our reputation and act with all purity. And one of my friends asked a question, Dr. Vettito, what happens if Like you're leaving the church and your church secretary is on I-25 in Denver and it's pouring down rain and she she gets a flat tire and she's on the side of the road. Are you to go get her and have her drive in your car and take her to her husband or take her for help? What are you supposed to do then, uh, Dr. Vettito? And he got this big smile on his face. He says, leave her there and hope her cell phone works. What? Leave her there and hope her cell phone works? No, he, he wasn't joking. He said, don't even get in the car with your secretary because that's breaking the Billy Graham rule. Now, the issue is you want to avoid any appearance of evil. I'm going to read this. I I don't particularly use the NIV a lot, but the NIV captures this a little bit differently. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, it says, But among you there must not even be a hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Not even a hint, not even an appearance of sexual impropriety for this young Pastor Timothy in relating with other women in the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of, of evil. We live in an overly sexualized culture, and this has crept into the church. Do we engage with coarse joking with members of the opposite sex? Is it just merely flirting that makes other people uncomfortable? Let me dr- address the teenagers here this morning, just real quickly. Parents, you can listen, but this is mainly geared towards our youth. You are growing up in a world of sexual confusion. And you're being sold a bill of goods that it's 
all right and good and proper and actually a good thing to have sex before marriage. You're being told that this whole transgender thing and, and, and this queer culture and LGBT stuff is, is, is okay. And so you're getting your idea of sexuality from Snapchat and from YouTube and from video clips and from video games and from TikTok, and you're growing up in a world that makes fun of purity. Now, about 12 to 15 years ago, it was very trendy for some of these Hollywood actors and musicians to get a purity ring. They got these purity rings. I'm going to stay pure until the day I get married. It's like a true love waits purity ring. And so especially a lot of these Disney stars that came out, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to wear these purity rings. I'm not going to have sex until marriage. Now, let me give you the list of those who wore purity rings. Okay, you ready for the list? Miley Cyrus. Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, and the Jonas Brothers. Now, I don't need to go into detail. Some of you are like, I don't have no idea who these people are. My grandparents are like, I don't know who these people are. Um, let me just say this. Demi Lovato just came out with a song, a very vulgar song, a pro-abortion vulgar song called Swine that just came out a few weeks ago. One of the greatest values you can have as a Christian teenager is purity. Purity. Now, this was kind of shocking. Back in 1985, when I was in eighth grade, I was in shop class, and it was a Monday morning, and my friends started talking about what they did over the weekend at their church. And so my friend, I won't mention the type of church he went to, but he went to a youth camp, a youth retreat over the weekend at his church. And he was bragging about how many kids were having sexual relations at this church camp. And he was bragging about how the leaders provided contraceptives for the students at the youth camp because they did not want any girls to get pregnant at the youth camp, but they wanted these kids to have, quote-unquote, fun. This was back in the 80s. Today, many churches have compromised on purity. I mean, that ship has sailed for a lot of churches we have churches now that are accepting every type of sexual immorality. They're championing it. They're preaching on it. They're accepting it. And they're gone way far beyond what the Bible teaches on purity. So, so I, I'm very concerned that, and I've said this multiple times before, your kids are going to get discipled. The question is, are you going to be the one that disciples them? Are you going to disciple them or is the culture going to disciple them? Because they're going to get discipled. Their mind and heart's going to get shaped by the culture. So parents, you better take the reins real quick from the culture and start pouring into your child issues of purity because they live in a world that mocks it, that mocks purity. And adults, were not off the hook either. I'm talking to the youth, but we live in the same culture as well. It damages our witness when we are not pure. Kent Hughes says this, how beautiful is the church that has people who know who they are then treat one another as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. Such a graced family knows how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he says this, such graced conduct means that the gospel will go forth unhindered. Unhindered. 
So the first mark of a healthy church is that we encourage one another with all patience. The second mark of a healthy church is we engage one another with all purity. But here's the third mark of a healthy church. Believers should ensure that needs are met with all provision. Now, for the next two weeks, Paul's going to, and we're going to deal with this next week, Paul is going to address widows. How do we take care of widows? So evidently, there were a lot of widows in the church in, in, in Ephesus. And so Paul here says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Honor. Now, that means give them respect, but ultimately it means help them financially. Take care of their physical needs. You see, in ancient Greece, widows didn't have a lot of rights, didn't have a lot of ways to take. There was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. Basically, their income was based upon the dowry that they got from their husband. And so if their husband died, they did not get to keep that dowry because they had no legal rights. The dowry went either to their son or to their grandson, and they had to move in with their son and the grandson, and he would take care of her finances. And so if you were a widow who did not have a son or a grandson, you were considered a true widow that the church really needed to help. But Paul first says, listen, members of the church, if you're still living and you're still able to take care of your mom who's a widow, you need to step up to the plate and do that. You need to take care of her. Now, the Bible clearly teaches how we should take care of widows. Paul's not teaching anything new. The Old Testament has a lot to say about widows. Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, widows and orphans. Psalm 68, 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. I could go on and on about how the Old Testament teaches how we should take care of widows. How did Jesus treat widows? Do you remember Luke chapter 7? The widow's son in the the city of Nain, they were carrying his body out on the burial, and and she was weeping, and Jesus goes and touches and heals him and gives the boy back to to his mother in that beautiful scene where Jesus takes care of a widow? Remember what he said in Luke 21 about the widow that gives her her, her little mite, the widow's mite? She gives all she has to the offering, and he, he praises this widow. But what's the greatest act of how Jesus took care of a widow? What did he do when he was dying on the cross? And he looked down to his mom, Mary, and what did he say to the apostle John in John 19, 26? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Even when he's dying on the cross, he makes sure that his widowed mother Mary is taken care of by the Apostle John. So the Old Testament teaches about widows. Jesus treated widows. And then James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. There's a great responsibility of children to take care of their widowed mothers and widow or fathers i would say too but notice what paul calls it in verse four he doesn't just call it a duty this is your duty notice what he says in verse four let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of god he calls it godly and pleasing and, and he says, basically, you're, you're repaying your parents. It's not legalistic to say, hey, listen, 
your mother gave birth to you, she raised you, she nourished you, and now she's a widow. The least you can do, son, is to pay her back for all that she did by taking care of her in her old age. You're repaying her for the mom that she was to you. It's an act of worship. It's not a burden. It's not a duty. It's godly and pleasing. And so Paul gives three characteristics of a true widow. Because there's true and false widows back in that time. What's a true widow? Okay, so he gives us a definition. So let's look at, look at this. So verse 5, she who's truly a widow. Okay, what, what's the definition there? So here's three things. Number one, she's left all alone. That means she doesn't have any family to take care of her. So the church needs to step up to the plate. She's left all alone. Number two, she has her hope set on God. And number three, she continues in supplication and prayers night and day. She is a godly woman left alone and a woman of prayer. She's a fervent prayer. She does what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says. She prays without ceasing. Now, there's a great biblical example of a widow who fits this model. Do you remember Anna the prophetess in Luke chapter 2 that was waiting for the Messiah? And Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple. What does it say about Anna in Luke 2, 36-37? There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then a widow until she was 84. And this is what it says about this widow. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So what type of widow should the church support primarily? One who doesn't have any family members to step up to the plate. That's the first place, the family members. But if she doesn't have any family members, a godly praying woman. The church needs to step up and say, we need to take care of these widows. Now, in contrast to that, there are what Paul would call a false widow, or one who's not truly a widow. And we see this in verse 6. What does he say there about this type of widow? Verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Now, self-indulgent could be sexually immoral or it could be that she's given into materialism. The Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Greek translation, in Ezekiel 16.49, I'm going to give you kind of the, the Septuagint definition here behold this was the guilt of your sister sodom she and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease did not aid the poor and needy the word prosperous ease the way the old testament translates that in greek is the same word that's used here of self-indulgent it basically means lewdness excessive living one commentator describes this word as this an unreserved surrender to this world's idea of life and it's thirst for entertain, entertainment. So Paul says she may act like she's a Christian, but she's spiritually dead. She, need, she needs to be made alive. She's spiritually dead. So we need to be discerning in how we give out benevolence. Deacons are deacons who, who help the benevolence ministries of our church. They need some discernment because benevolence is not just an entitlement. There needs to be some discernment in how we handle these situations. We don't want to just give money out to people that are not living a lifestyle that would be becoming, especially these widows. And then verse 7, again, Paul tells Timothy to command these things. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Again, it's about a purity. 
tell these ladies, these widows, to not act this way. They, they need to be pure. 2 Corinthians 8.21, For we aim what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. So it's, again, it's an issue of purity. But then verse 8 gives a very strong warning. This is probably one of the strongest statements in the Bible about how you treat your aging parents. Notice how Paul, he puts the hammer down pretty hard here. If anyone does, this is verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, listen to these two descriptions. He's denied the faith, number one, and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, in our modern culture, we do have safety nets to help. There's Medicare, there's Social Security, there's investments, there's retirement savings. And so there are ways that children can help prepare their parents and take care of their aging parents financially. But I think Paul's saying, let's go beyond just finances and let's have some hands-on, tangible, emotional care. I've seen some adult children care for their aging parents financially, put them up well in a nursing home, put them up well in assisted living, but they've emotionally neglected them. They haven't been there to take care of them emotionally. Let the professionals do that. Now, I'm not saying that, that you have to do everything, that we have to do everything for aging parents. There's nurses, there's doctors, there's assisted living. But there's an emotional attachment to making sure that we financially, emotionally, spiritually take care of our aging parents because it damages our witness. Why is it so damaging when you don't do that? Why does Paul say you're worse than an unbeliever? Here's why. Non-Christians look at that and say, well, I instinctively know I'm supposed to take care of my parents. Non-Christians know they're supposed to take care of their parents. And when Christians aren't, non-Christians look at that and say, that's crazy, that's selfish, that's stingy. They're acting no different than the world. And why it's worse than being an unbeliever is that if you're a believer and you claim to be a believer and you're doing this, you're knowingly breaking God's law. You're knowingly breaking the, the commandment to honor your father and mother. It's not coming from ignorance. It's coming from rebellion. What does Ephesians 6, 2-3 say? Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. If you don't take care of your aging parents, I'm not saying you've lost your salvation because that's not possible, but you could be in danger of not truly being saved and you're proving it out by an unrepentant attitude toward the way you treat aging parents. You're acting like an unbeliever. So 1 John three sixteen through 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Are we a culture, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, of meeting needs, of helping one another, of taking care of our widows, of taking care of those that need provision? So the bottom line is this. A healthy church has a culture of patience, purity, and provision. And Jesus sums it up this way. It was read earlier during our time of confession. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you listen to K-Love really loud. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have a big fish on the back of your car. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you carry around a big Bible and memorize it. You know where I'm getting at. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if what? You have love for one another. Now, I could stop this message right here and say, okay, go out and do this. Go out in your own power and love and be patient and be pure and provide for one another, but I would do you a disservice because I'm not bringing in Jesus in the gospel. We must always come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his power in our lives. And so the only way we can truly have a culture in our own personal lives and a culture in this church that is healthy of patience, purity, and provision is because of Jesus. So let's think about patience for a moment. Who alone showed tremendous patience with us by dying on the cross when we did not deserve it? His name's Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.16, but I receive mercy for this, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate model of patience, of encouragement. He's patient. He's kindness. His loving kindness leads us to repentance. All right, let's think about purity for a moment. Who's the only one who was 100% absolutely pure in thought, word, and deed, and never once sinned? Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, truly God, truly man, absolutely pure. He's the ultimate example of purity. He's the ultimate example of patience. Let's think about provision for a moment. Who is the only one that can provide for all of our needs spiritually? Jesus is the ultimate provider. He provides forgiveness, acceptance by dying on the cross and rising again. So do you look to Jesus as your only source of patience, purity, and provision? Do you trust in Him to forgive you of your sins? Do you own up to your rebellion that you've sinned against a holy God and you need to be in a right relationship with the Father and it only comes through the mercy of Jesus? Jesus, the only one that was worthy enough to die on the cross, the pure, spotless Lamb of God. Do you rest in Jesus to be your only source of all provision? We cannot be healthy individual Christians. We cannot be a healthy church that has a culture of patience, purity, and provision without Jesus. He's our source. Not only is He our example, He's our Savior. So let's, let's pray for these three marks in your individual life and in the life of our church. So let's just ask the question, are you marked by patience? Are you marked by purity? And are you meeting needs with provision? So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus alone who showed us ultimate patience is the embodiment of absolute purity and who alone is the source of unending provision. He's our patience. He's our purity. He's our provision. And only He gives us the power to live this out 
for his glory alone. So let's pray to that end as individuals and as a church family. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you pray that you would be a person of patience, a person of purity, a person that meets other people's needs with provision, and that Jesus alone would create this culture of health in your family, in your life, in our church, only by his grace alone. Would you just spend a few, few moments asking Jesus to do this in your life? Heaven, we come before you this morning, and we are the first to admit that we are not patient people. We can be very impatient. We can be people that don't encourage. We can discourage. We can be quick to lash out with our tongues. So, Lord, please forgive us of being impatient, discouraging people, and give us the grace through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to be people of patience. Lord, there may be some in this room that are acting in impure lives. They're walking in impurity. They're putting impure things before their eyes. They're engaging in impure activities. It could be thought life. It could be things they're actually doing. Lord, only you know. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction to hearts of those that are in this room that need to walk in purity. Lord, help us to be those that walk in purity, to treat each other with all purity. And, Lord, there may be some in this room that just need their needs met. I think about the widows in our church. Father, I think about one in particular, our dear sister Chris Fisher, who's been through so much these past few months. Would you just lift her up specifically as she comes to mind as a widow in our church that needs your grace? Lord, help us to be a church family that provides for one another's needs, that we don't just talk about love, but we show it with action. Lord, help us to love one another in concrete, tangible ways. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be, a church of patience, a church of purity, and a church of provision. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room this morning that's never trusted you for salvation, they they don't have that peace in their heart to know that their sins are forgiven. They know that they were to stand before you on the day of judgment. They would go to an eternal hell. Lord, give them the gift of repentance this day and draw them to yourself. And Holy Spirit, would you raise those that are spiritually dead to spiritual life, that they would trust in Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior today they would leave this place beyond a shadow of a doubt knowing their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life because they've trusted in Jesus and repented of their sins. So Lord, we need your grace, we need your mercy to be the people you've called us to be. We ask these things with confidence knowing that we can approach your throne of grace with boldness in time of need. So Lord Jesus, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in your name, Lord.